Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 222. Today's big Bible question, how is it possible to be angry and not sin? And also, is righteous anger biblical? So hello, guys. Happy Wednesday to you. Our church tonight is hosting an online prayer meeting tonight, Wednesday night, 7 p.m. Pacific at www.facebook.com slash VBC Salinas, or you can just go to Facebook and search for VBC Salinas. That's Victor Bravo Charlie Salinas. If you would like to stop by and pray with us or share prayer requests with us, please do so. Look, I would personally love to pray with you, and you can email me at my personal email address, which is chaseathompson at gmail.com. That's uh, C-H-A-S-E-A-T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N at gmail.com. You can go to the website, BibleReadingPodcast.com, and leave a comment, and I'd be happy to pray for you. Or honestly, I'll just tell you my personal text number. It's area code 205-568-6836. I've offered that number up before and received some prayer requests, a few of them, but it didn't blow up my phone because this is not uh, the most popular podcast that ever hit the face of this earth. But it's great to pray for you guys, and I love to hear from you all around the world and uh, in the States. So if you have a prayer request and you want to join us tonight for prayer on Facebook or you just want us to pray for you, we are happy to do so. Our scripture passages today are Judges 19. Jeremiah 33, Psalms 3 and 4, and Acts 23. We are going to read about something absolutely horrific in Judges. And I want to remind you that the Bible doesn't whitewash over sin and depravity, especially the book of Judges. My goodness. The theme of the whole book of Judges is found in the last verse, Judges 21-25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. So Judges is essentially a 21-chapter-long history and meditation of what it is like when religious people simply do what is right in their own eyes. Now, our focus passage from today is, once again, from Psalms. That's two days in a row. Chapter 4, verse 4, where it says, Be angry and do not sin. Reflect in your heart while on your bed and be silent. So apparently it's not always wrong to be angry, but anger can most certainly open the door for many sinful and hurtful and dangerous acts. So let's read our Psalms passages and then discuss anger. Psalm chapter 3 verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Lord, how my foes increase. There are many who attack me. Many say about me, there is no help for him in God. Selah. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. I cry aloud to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain, Selah. I lie down and sleep. I wake again, because the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of thousands of people who have taken their stand against me on every side. Rise up, Lord. Save me, my God. You strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. May your blessing be on your people. Selah. Psalm chapter 4 verse 1. Answer me when I call God who vindicates me. You freed me from affliction. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. How long, exalted ones, will my honor be insulted? How long will you love what is worthless and pursue a lie? Selah. Know that the Lord has set apart the faithful for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. 
Reflect in your heart while on your bed and be silent. Selah. Offer sacrifices in righteousness and trust in the Lord. Many are asking, who can show us anything good? Let the light of your face shine on us, Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and new wine abound. I will both lie down and sleep in peace, for you alone, Lord, make me live in safety. So anger is an issue that most churches don't speak about quite enough. My friend and fellow pastor David Crazy Legs McConnell, pastor of Agape Temple in Pinson, Alabama, recently brought taught on anger and gave four reasons why it's very important for Christians to approach anger from a biblical place. And this is what Pastor David said. Number one, the widespread impact of sinful anger. The human heart tends increasingly towards hostility without the ongoing sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And even then, we are not immune from the influence of anger. Although it may present itself differently in each of us, none of us are free of its temptation. Sinful anger produces works such as envy, gossip, hate, depression, division, violence, and even murder. It has lasting and deep impact scarring individuals, families, and churches. So the second reason we should think about anger from a biblical perspective is the threat of sinful rage against unity in the church. In a faith family where God is bearing fruit, the enemy of Christ will look for opportunities to gain entry, grieve God's spirit, and suppress his work. Strife, resentment, bitterness are threats to our abiding in Jesus and therefore threats to our unity. Number three reason we should consider anger from a biblical perspective. The culture we live in right now is a rage culture. And David says, I remember no time in my life in which our society is as angry and argumentative as it is now. As a people, we are losing grasp on how to disagree without hatred, on how to listen and then speak carefully, on how to oppose without venom. Ephesians 4 warns us not to live as the godless live. We are in this culture, but we must not be like this culture. We must flee divisive rhetoric and anger in order to make Christ known. Amen to that. Finally, number four reason that we should think about anger in a biblical way Our teaching on anger is often shallow in general. Pastor David says, There are two primary approaches to dealing with anger in our culture. First, there's a strong emphasis on venting. Everyone needs to vent, we are told. Pitch a fit, blow off some steam, punch a wall, or make a fiery post on Facebook are all helpful ways of dealing with anger in the venting perspective. But even secular psychologists see the errors in that approach, warning that indulging in venting when we are young will lead to increasingly destructive behaviors against ourselves and others when we are older. Proverbs 29.11 says it is a fool who gives full vent to his spirit. Now, the other common approach, says David, to dealing with anger is suppressing it. This may be the thought most widely accepted in churches, that godly people suppress or hide their anger, but that too is dangerous. The reality is the Bible does not present a shallow approach to anger, such as suppressing it or venting it. In the Ephesians 4 passage, verse 26 says we should be angry and not sin, while verse 31 tells us to let anger and wrath remove, be removed from us. So which one is it? It's both. The Bible teaches that there is a type of sinful anger that we must put away and a type of anger that is actually warranted or helpful. So how dangerous is anger? Let's consider like Galatians 5, 19 through 21, which says this, 
Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. Paul says, I tell you about these things in advance, as I told you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, beloved, those have who have an anger problem, biblically speaking, have a keeping yourself out of the kingdom of God problem. Because outbursts of anger are disqualifying, much more sinful than what we think. So what about righteous anger? That's okay, right? Well, here's the thing. I can't really find that phrase in scripture. I think I can sort of see the concept there, but I don't really see anywhere that it actually applies to humans. God can be angry in a righteous way. I'm not 100% sure that we can. It's certainly not in the same way. I do, however, think we can be angry and not sin, as David mentioned above. The passage he quoted, Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, be angry, do not sin, Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. So I do think it's possible to be angry and not sin. I'm not sure that we can be righteously angry, at least not the way God can, but certainly we can look at injustices and horrible things and engage in a type of anger that is not a sinful anger. But let's look at how Jesus handled anger so that we can see a little bit about what sinless anger looks like. Now, I find only two places in Scripture where the Bible says Jesus was angry. Now, we might say, well, Jesus was surely angry when he overturned the tables of the money changers in the temple. Well, the Bible doesn't say he was angry there. We could say he certainly acted a little passionate there, and that's true. But the only two places in Scripture I can find where it says that Jesus was angry is in John 11 and Mark chapter 3. In John 11, verse 32 says this, When Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was angry in his spirit and deeply moved. Where have you put him? He asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, angry in himself again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and the stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, he's already decaying. It's been four days. Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So what's the takeaways? Well, Jesus was obviously affected by Lazarus's dying early. Now, don't get me wrong. Lazarus died precisely when he was supposed to. God is sovereign. But Psalms 90 verse 10 does seem to indicate that humans should live about 70 or 80 years. So Jesus was groaning, maybe even angry about this tragedy. Well, how did he handle it? How did he handle it when they accused him of, well, not accused him, but they sort of grumbled, couldn't the one who opened the blind man's eyes have prevented Lazarus from dying? How did Jesus handle that? Well, he was gentle with everybody. He was angry in himself. No accusations of God, no lashing out, no silent brooding. Now, one thing I need to say about that, the silent brooding part, 
Anger isn't always loud. You might think you've got anger mastered because you don't holler at people. You know what? I think that sometimes too. I don't really get angry on the surface a lot. Sometimes, rarely. Instead, I sulk. I get angry, but I try to pretty it up by letting that brooding anger uh, inside of me instead of releasing explosive anger outside of me. Tim Challies writes that anger is anger. Anger doesn't have to be shouting and hollering and bang, banging things. In my personal anger, it's usually pretty quiet. Um, I used to get mad. I have some friends who have uh, a real strong discernment gift. And I would get mad when I would get angry around them about something or whatever. And I felt like I was hiding it really good. And they would call me on it and maybe even point out that I was angry for a wrong reason. I would say it's not fair. I didn't holler or shout or swear or anything like that, but they discerned my heart. To be truthful, I was proud of myself for self-restraint, but the fact is that my anger, and probably your anger, is not usually justifiable. Sometimes it is, but not usually. And when we're broody about it or quiet or sulking or seething or whatever, that's not righteous anger. That's not sinless anger. Sometimes I've withheld myself when I am angry with somebody. Maybe you do that too. You're not going to holler at them, but you're just going to hold back yourself. You're going to be quiet. You're not going to open yourself up to them because you're angry with them. Well, that's sin. It's not righteous answer, anger. It's not the Jesus way. It's not mature. And again, I'm just being honest with you. That's how I do it sometimes. And I shouldn't. It's not the way to handle anger. If you're an explosively angry person, that's dangerous, and Galatians 5 applies to you. If you're a quiet, seething, sulking, angry person, that's dangerous, and Ephesians 5 applies to us too. Well, the second Jesus is angry passage, Mark chapter 3, verse 1. Now, Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a paralyzed hand. In order to accuse him, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal the man on the Sabbath. Jesus told the man with the paralyzed hand, stand before us. Then he said to him, them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do what is good or to do what is evil, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. After looking around at them with anger and sorrow at the hardness of their hearts, he told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and his hand was restored. Immediately, the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. So interestingly, in chapter 2, Jesus receives a ton of criticisms. He's criticized for forgiving the paralytic sins before healing him. He's criticized for dining with sinners. He's criticized for his disciples not fasting when John's disciples did fast. He's criticized for picking heads of grain on the Sabbath. Well, how does he handle that criticism? How does he handle his anger this time? Well, there's no attacks, no shouting, no sulking, no outbursts. And I note here that God's anger is often equal parts anger as we would think about it and sorrow. So notice what it says in our Psalms passage. Psalm 4, verse 4, be angry and do not sin. The very next thing, on your bed, reflect in your heart and be still. Selah. I think that gives us a real clue how to hang, handle our anger in a non-sinful way. Look, we can't fully control our emotions as humans, can we? But we can, with the power of the Holy Spirit and the fruit of self-control, we can be angry and not sin. And one of the ways we can do that 
is reflecting on our bed and being still before the Lord. So one more question. How did Jesus handle personal offense? Well, I think 1 Peter 2, 21-23 gives us a great idea. When he, Peter says, You were called to this because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you f- should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was suffering, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. So when Jesus was attacked, he didn't attack back. When he was suffering harm at the hands of another, he didn't threaten that person. He trusted himself to God. So our picture of what it means to be angry and not sin is Jesus. Jesus didn't attack people. Jesus didn't stab back when he was stabbed. He did not revile in return. So is it possible to be angry and not sin? Yes, let's look to our master Jesus for the way to do that, my friends. And we won't look, however, at the example of this terrible person in Judges chapter 9 that we're going to read about today. Judges chapter 19, I mean, verse 1. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a Levite staying in a remote part of the hill country of Ephraim acquired a woman from Bethlehem in Judah as his concubine. But she was unfaithful to him and left him for her father's house in Bethlehem in Judah. She was there for four months. Then her husband got up and followed her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had his servant with servant with him and a pair of donkeys. So she brought him to her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the girl's father, detained him, and he stayed with him for three days. They ate, drank, and spent the night there. On the fourth day, they got up early in the morning and prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Have something to eat to give up your strength, and then you can go. So they sat down, and the two of them ate and drank together. Then the girl's father said to the man, Please agree to stay overnight and enjoy yourself. The man got up to go, but his father-in-law persuaded him, so he stayed and spent the night there again. He got up early in the morning of the fifth day to leave, but the girl's father said to him, Please, keep up your strength. So they waited until late afternoon, and the two of them ate. The man got up to go with his concubine and his servant when his father-in-law, the girl's father, said, Look, night is coming. Please spend the night. See, the day is almost over. Spend the night here. Enjoy yourself. Then you can get up early tomorrow for your journey and go home. But the man was unwilling to spend the night. He got up, departed, and arrived opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. The man had his two saddled donkeys and his concubine with him. When they were near Jebus and the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, Please, why not let us stop at this Jebusite city and spend the night there? But his master replied to him, We will not stop at a foreign city where there are no Israelites. Let's move on to Gibeah. Come on, he said. Let's try to reach one of these places and spend the night in Gibeah or Ramah. So they continued on their journey, and the sun set as they neared Gibeah and Benjamin. They stopped to go in and spend the night in Gibeah. The Levite went in and sat down in the city square, but no one took them into their home to spend the night. In the evening, an old man came in from his work in the field. He was from the hill country of Ephraim, but he was residing in Gibeah, where the people were Benjaminites. When he looked up and saw the traveler in the city square, the old man asked, Where are you going, and where do you come from? And he answered him, We are traveling from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote hill country of Ephraim, where I am from. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and now I am going to the house of the Lord. No one has taken me into his home, although there's straw and feed for the donkeys, and I have bread and wine for me, my concubine and the servant with us. There's nothing we lack. 
Welcome, said the old man. I'll take care of everything you need. Only don't spend the night in the square. So he brought him to his house and fed the donkeys. Then they washed their feet and ate and drank. While they were enjoying themselves, all of a sudden, wicked men of the city surrounded the house and beat on the door. They said to the old man, who was the owner of the house, Bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went out and said to them, Please don't do this evil, my brothers. After all, this man has come into his my house. Don't commit this horrible outrage. Here, let me bring out my virgin daughter and the man's concubine now. Abuse them and do whatever you want to them. But don't commit this outrageous thing against this man. But the men would not listen to him, so they man seized his concubine and took her outside to them. They raped her and abused her all night until morning. At daybreak, they let her go. Early that morning, the woman made her way back, and as it was getting light, she collapsed at the doorway of the man's house where her master was. When her master got up in the morning, opened the doors of the house, and went out to leave on his journey, there was the woman, his concubine, collapsed near the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. Get up, he told her. Let's go. But there was no response. So the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. When he entered his house, he picked picked up a knife, took hold of his concubine, cut her into twelve pieces limb by limb, and then sent her throughout the territory of Israel. Everyone who saw it said, Nothing like this has ever happened or has been seen since the day the Israelites came out of the land of Egypt until now. Think it over, discuss it, and speak up. Well, that's just a horrifying chapter of Scripture. Every person in it, utterly wicked and depraved. Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 1. While he was still confined in the guard's courtyard, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time. The Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed it to establish it, the Lord is his name, says this, Call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and incomprehensible things you do not know. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the houses of this city and the palaces of Judah's kings, the ones torn down for defense against the assault ramps and the sword. The people coming to fight the Chaldeans will fill the houses with the corpses of their own men that I strike down in my wrath and fury. I have hidden my face from this city because of all their evil, yet I will certainly bring health and healing to it and will indeed heal them. I will let them experience the abundance of true peace. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and of Israel and will rebuild them as in former times. I will purify them from all the iniquity that they have committed against me, and I will forgive all the iniquities they have committed against me, rebelling against me. This city will bear on my behalf a name of joy, praise, and glory before all the nations of the earth, who will hear of all the prosperity I will give them. They will tremble with all because of all the good and all the peace I will bring about for them. This is what the Lord says, In this place which you say is a ruin without people or animals, that is, in Judah's cities and Jerusalem's streets that are a desolation without people, without inhabitants, and without animals, there will be heard again a sound of joy and gladness, the voice of the groom and the bride, and the voice of those saying, Give thanks to the Lord of armies, for the Lord is good, his faithful love endures forever. As they bring thanksgiving sacrifices to the temple of the Lord, for I will restore the fortunes of the land as in former times, says the Lord. This is what the Lord of armies says, in this desolate place, without people or animals, and in all of its cities, there will once more be a grazing land where shepherds may rest flocks. The flocks will again pass under the hands of the one who counts them in the cities of the hill country, 
the cities of the Judean foothills, the cities of the Negev, the land of Benjamin, the areas around Jerusalem, and in Judah's city, says the Lord. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration, when I will fulfill the good promise that I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to sprout up for David, and he will administer justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely, and this is what she will be named. The Lord is our righteousness." For this is what the Lord says, David will never fail to have a man sitting on the throne of the house of Israel. The Levitical priests will never fail to have a man always before me to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says, if you could break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that day and night cease to come at their regular time, then also my covenant with my servant David may be broken. If that can happen, then he would not have a son reigning on his throne, and the Levitical priests would not be my ministers. Even as the stars of heaven cannot be counted and the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so too I will make innumerable the descendants of my servant David and the Levites who minister to me. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not noticed what these people have said? They say the Lord has rejected the two families he had chosen. My people are treated with contempt and no longer regarded as a nation among them. This is what the Lord says. If I do not keep my covenant with the day and with the night, and if I fail to establish the fixed order of heaven and earth, then I might also reject the descendants of Jacob and of my servant David. That is, I would not take rulers from his descendants to rule over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but in fact, I will restore their fortunes and have compassion on them. Acts chapter 23 verse 1. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience to this day. The high priest Ananias ordered those who were standing next to him to strike Paul on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. You are sitting there judging according to the law and yet in violation of the law. Are you ordering me to be struck? Those standing nearby said, Do you dare revile God's high priest? I I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, replied Paul, for it is written, You must not speak evil of a ruler of your people. When Paul realized that one part of them were Sadducees and the other were Pharisees, he cried out in the Sanhedrin, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am being judged because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection in neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees affirm them all. The shouting grew loud, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party got up and argued vehemently, We find nothing evil in this man. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? When the dispute became violent, The commander feared that Paul might be torn apart by them and ordered the troops to go down, take him away from them, and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Have courage, for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so it is necessary for you to testify in Rome. When it was morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than forty who had formed this plot, These men went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a solemn curse that we won't eat anything until we have killed Paul. 
So now you, along with the Sanhedrin, make a request to the commander that he bring him down to you as if you are going to investigate his case more thoroughly. But before he gets near, we are ready to kill him. But the son of Paul's sister, hearing about their ambush, came and entered the barracks and reported it to Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander, because he has something to report to him. So he took him, brought him to the commander, and said, The prisoner Paul called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, because he has something to say to you. The commander took him by the hand, led him aside, and inquired privately, What is it you have to report to me? The Jews, he said have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the Sanhedrin tomorrow, as though they are going to hold a somewhat more careful inquiry about him. Don't let them persuade you, because there are more than forty of them lying in ambush, men who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they have killed him. Now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the commander dismissed the young man and instructed him, Don't tell anyone that you have informed me about this. He summoned two of his centurions and said, Get two hundred soldiers ready with seventy cavalry and two hundred spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Also provide mounts to ride so that Paul may be brought safely to Felix the governor. He wrote the following letter, Claudius Lessilus, to the most excellent governor, Felix. Greetings. When this man had been seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them, I arrived with my troops and rescued him because I learned that he is a Roman citizen. Wanting to know the charge they were accusing him of, I brought him down before the Sanhedrin. I found out that the accusations were concerning questions of their law and that there was no charge that merited death or imprisonment. When I was informed that there was a plot against the man, I sent him to you right away. I also ordered his accusers to state their case against him in your presence. So the soldiers took Paul during the night and brought him to Antipatris as they were ordered. The next day they returned to the barracks, allowing the cavalry to go on without them, go on with him. When these men entered Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. After he read it, he asked what province he was from. When he learned he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing whenever your accusers also get here. He ordered that he be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Amen. Well, friends, may the light of the Lord shine on your faces and in your hearts. May you walk in his ways and may you walk with wisdom and safety and protection. Good day and Godspeed.